right, Gundog Notebook listeners, welcome back to another episode. Um, man, man. First and foremost, I need to start by saying, uh, giving you guys my apologies. I was supposed to get this episode out uh, earlier this morning, and I had a couple of hiccups, internet uh, connectivity issues, and I just missed uh, a particular part of this episode intro that I felt like I needed to include. It was a very, very, very um, important thing for me to do it, and I left it out of my show notes. But first and foremost, I want to say rest in peace um, to my buddy, my friend, um, man, a bit of a, a, a very close friend. He was my employer at one point in time, but um, also the publisher of the Gundog Notebook. It's the manufacturer and publisher of the Gundog Notebook, uh, number two, Tate Yandel. Um, my buddy Tate passed away um, a little over a week ago, and I think it's been about a week ago. And, you know, it kind of caught me, um, you know, by surprise, but Tate was just a very, very integral part of this entire operation. Um, every time I spoke to him, he was so happy and just... Um, you know, so encouraging, and he always lifted me up when I was giving him, you know, different news about some of the things that I was doing as far as the Gun Dog Notebook. And I mean, he's the reason, literally, why those of you who do have the number two, why, um, why that's even around. I mean, he made it happen for me. He did all the publishing, did all the printing, and. Um, you know, he he literally made the beginning of a dream of mine uh, come through. So I just, you know, want to send my prayers out to Tate. Um, I know he is in a much better place. I'm not sure why he passed away. Um, but the last time I saw him, I was literally picking up um, the first 50 Gundog Notebook number twos, a box of them. And I uh, met him up here in Atlanta, and he just wanted to make it a point to hand deliver him and come see me. So I don't know what, you know, what about that was, you know, what to call that, but I know it wasn't coincidence, man. Everything happens for a reason. Um, so I just want to always, you know, remember and honor Tate in his name um, and do things in his name as far as the gun dog notebook. And continue to be the person that he would have expected me to be. Um, you're talking about a man that hired and fired me when I was very young um, and being silly and being stupid. Um, couldn't wake up on time to get to work. And he, he did it out of love and definitely did it to teach me a lesson. Years later down the road, you know, we had talked for me, talked about me, um, you know, managing one of his shops, Easy Copy. Um, and I just, you know, one thing led to another and it just never worked out, but I always stayed in contact with Tate. Um, and I still owe that man a cigar, man. I, I really do a cigar and some bourbon. That's what we always just talk about. Um, I talked about, or Ashley and I talked about having him over for dinner at our house and that was supposed to be coming up soon, but you know, I, I guess that time will come later on. So anywho, um, also, Jeff Fuller at uh, Sporting Dog Adventures. I want to give out my condolences to Jeff Fuller um, for the loss of his son. You know, if you guys watch Sporting Dog Adventures, 
um, on YouTube, he put out a very beautiful um, video about his son, Cole, who, you know, for one reason or another, the good Lord decided it was, you know, his time. But I do want to just say my condolences out to Jeff Fuller. I don't know if Jeff listens to the podcast, but if so, man, you know, the whole community's out here for you, man. Um, and I'm sure you've already gotten that support, but I just wanted to be the person to say that as well. He's someone who I really enjoy his show, and I know Cole was a big part of his life. Um, so, you know, off of that, I, I just felt like it was necessary to honor those people. Um, we've also got some new changes coming up to the podcast um, coming up mid-May. You know, so stay tuned. Not going to say anything too much just yet, but, you know, come mid-May, we've got some, uh, we've definitely got some significant improvements, I'll say, to the podcast coming up. And I also want to thank my sponsors and affiliates, um, Lion Country Supply. Well, I just got a new 22 blank pistol from them. Eric Munda made sure I got it in a very, very timely manner. Um, and of course I've already went ahead and broke that bad boy in and guess who's not gun shy. This little dude sitting in my uh, lap. Vegas is definitely not gun shy and I'm so excited to, to, to you know, know that and it's not like they come born or they, uh, they're born gun shy, but the way that I did it, you know, I threw a bumper out there and uh, I threw a bumper out about 20, 30 yards away and right as he went to go retrieve it, which this little joker is retrieving the hand now, um, as he was going to retrieve it, fired a pistol you'd never thought, uh, you know, you would have never even known <laughs> that I fired a gun. He didn't budge. He brought it all the way back to hand. So we are going to continue with his progress, little man. All right. I'm sitting right here trying to bite at my fingers. Um... Also, so thank you for for that, uh, Eric Munden up at Lion Country Supply. Guys, go get your go get your uh, bird dog and gun dog supplies. Um, get them now. There's always deals. Subscribe to their mailing list, and we should have some codes coming for them too, as far as a gun dog notebook. So you know, just kind of stay tuned for that. Also, Dakota two eighty three. I want to thank them as well. Greg's always. Uh, you know, looking out for me, and, and, and I'm talking to him every so often. I will be going to Cronkite Farm in December for the hunting season. So it looks like I got to have these two little jokers tight. So we've been doing a whole bunch more training. Um, so, Greg, I hope you don't think my dogs are too crazy if you're listening to this episode. And um, I also, in the, in the meantime, we will be getting some new codes for... Dakota 283 as well. Some gun dog notebook specific codes. Um, but, you know, I, I just have to say the support that I get from Greg is just great. And he's always pushing new products. Um, the Tano Cover Kennel is the uh, is, is the newest product in the gun dog, um, you know, the gun dog kennel area. So check out Dakota 283 Kennels. For some new things, um, I definitely can lead you in the right direction as far as that goes. So within the next, you know, few episodes, we should have some new, uh, 
some new codes for you guys. It's the summertime. I want to get y'all some new stuff. All right. Um, this was interesting. So Project Upland, AJ and I, we always talking, you know, great guy. Um, Project Upland just released a new article, okay? It was, uh, I want you guys to go read it. It's something I definitely need to read. It's the demi block and mono versus mono block barrels, the difference. Um, yeah, I guess as a gun guy, that's something I need to know. And, you know, reading a part of it, I haven't gotten through the whole thing just yet. But it was definitely very well written and highly informative. So, you know, for those little specifics, man, go check that out. Um, it is written by AJ DeRosa himself. It's entitled, What is the Difference Between a Demi-Block Barrel and a Mono-Block Barrel? He's got great pictures. Um, and it just talks about exploring the barrel-making process for double-barrel guns. I am a bit of a double-barrel gun traditionalist, if y'all have not noticed that. I shoot over under and used to shoot a side by side. Later on, plan on getting a an uh, AYA side by side myself. So, with that being said, guys, go to the Project Upland website. Check out all of the content, all the videos. These guys are really, really, really pushing the bar. And those are my buddies too. I gotta support them. I've always been a big Project Upland fan. What you looking at, Vegas? Okay. Um. And lastly, guys, um, you know, check out more of the Orvis hunting and shooting uh, blog uh, articles and the videos and the podcast. Check out Reed Bryant's podcast. He's definitely been pushing a lot of good stuff there, too. Um, also, I know it's been a second. I am so sorry, but I have another couple of articles that I've been writing and kind of been tweaking. Take me a little bit longer than usual, but stay tuned for that. I'll be re releasing um, some new articles for Project Upland, and I'll be releasing new articles for Orvis. Um, so that's coming up very, very, very soon. And lastly, guys, I am heading to the Yukonuba Pet Nutrition or Pet Health Nutrition Center, um, and also going to the Kentucky Derby in about a week and some change. Yeah, about a week and some change at the end of this month. That's going to be cool. The Kentucky Derby has always been something that I have just really, 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 really um, wanted to go to. That was on my bucket list. I will be there May 3rd. So, you know, it's, it's the Kentucky Oaks part of it. Um, and we'll be there all day just kind of hanging out with the Yukonuba guys. That's going to be cool. I'll definitely have to come back and record an episode with those folks. Um, and, uh, you know, just tell y'all how it is. So, anyway. Again, I was supposed to release this episode this morning. Um, I had to do a little bit of re-editing. I needed to put those parts in there. Um, and just again, make sure you guys recognize, you know, who was important to me and also, you know, give my condolences to Jeff Fuller of uh, Sport and Dog Adventures. So with that being said, who we have on the line, I know many of you podcast junkies out there are, uh, you know, big fans of this podcast, The Lone Duck Chronicles, okay? And guess who our host is? Bob Owens, of course. You guys, stay tuned for a whole lot of really good episode. And and Bob is just the coolest guy. When you hear him talking on the podcast, he's just the coolest guy in the world. So, anywho, stay tuned. 
Coming up next is Bob Owens from Lone Duck Chronicles. Okay, guys, we have another, another, another special episode of the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast. This is podcast to podcast. Um, definitely a gentleman that I listen to on the regular. So I want to welcome Bob Owens of Lone Duck Chronicles. Bob, what's up, Chief? What's going on, big guy? Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm excited to chat with you about dogs and hunting and all the good things we do. Yes, sir. Well, I will definitely say first and foremost, um, don't get on, on here and embarrass me too much. I think I know a little bit about training the lab. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool, man. Well, you know, just in light of you putting up some new puppy or some puppies, uh, you know, a second ago, talk about that new litter you have, man. What's what's going on with there? Yeah, so these little guys are about 12 weeks. They were born January 17th. Um, Labrador Retrievers, uh, my female uh, that I actually co-own. So one of my clients and myself <laughs> own her together. Her okay. name is Cruz. She is uh, a beautiful black lab, great personality, lovable, sweetheart of the kennel, hardworking dog, but also very kind of gentle and mild-mannered. Uh, and then in the field, she's a monster. And we bred her to a dog named Rage. And Rage is a dog that I used to, I used to train with another guy and work for him years ago. And Rage was in his kennel, so I knew I knew him really well and got to watch him work every day and loved his personality and his physique and his charisma in the field. And so when push came to shove, we bred Cruz to Rage, and these little dudes are, are 12 weeks. Uh, the litter, we had 12 puppies. Everybody was happy, healthy, and went home a few weeks ago. And, you know, it's definitely an extremely fulfilling thing to do. Right. Watching, yeah, I mean, I'm right there birthing them with her, you know, pulling them out, cleaning them off, making sure that they're all breathing and eating and watching her. And and, it, and then just now we're starting to teach them how to get in the water and picking up pigeons and, you know, just some really cool stuff. It's it's neat, man. It's fulfilling is the word I use the most. I, I loved right. it. Right. Well, you know, since we're, I guess, on the topic, and I definitely want to get into the, the deeper parts of who Bob Owens is and Lone Duck Chronicles, but, you know, what are some things that folks should worry about, man? Like, I've never, you know, bred a litter before, but you definitely have the experience. Now, what are, I guess, what is the the one thing that you might have been most worried about? Uh, there's a couple things. Not knowing when or if I need to go to the vet. Okay. Um, there's things that can happen. Like we had a litter. It was a English pointer. And she had had a litter before. Raised them all great. She had a big litter. She got bred and I was kind of in charge of helping raise this litter. And in the middle of the night, she quit. She stopped being in labor didn't know what to do, took her to the vet. They wanted to do an emergency C-section for like the tune of eight grand or oh, something stupid. Shoot. Yeah. And they, they knew that we were either going to pay them or put the dog down and lose the litter and really 
used the heartstrings, like tugged at the heartstrings for us to say like, yeah, here's a credit card, you know, just get it done. And, and we actually didn't, we decided let's wait. Cause it was what four in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I make phone calls at four in the morning to some very close friends. And they're like, well, give her another hour or two people. You know, my vet woke up at 6am and answered my text and we ended up getting her into a different vet. And I think it was like $800, like <laughs> way cheaper. And we saved her life. All the puppies happened to pass away, unfortunately. But wow. basically what happened, not to digress too much, but what happened was one of the puppies, the first one that was to be born, mm-hmm. died in the birth canal. Oh. So it had gotten stuck. None of the other babies could push through. She couldn't keep pushing. She got too tired and gave up. So if we didn't get her in for a C-section, everybody would have passed away and it would have been tragic. So I worry about things like that. Um, I worry about the first two weeks of the puppy's life. They have to keep a really warm body temperature. Mm -hmm. So if they get damp, if they get cold, if the mother isn't keeping them warm or feeding them enough, their core body temperature can dip. And if it dips down below a certain level it's basically critical mission critical. Like they'll die. They won't, they can't do it themselves. They can't get themselves warm. So I had that room, the puppy whelping room, like 98 degrees. I feel like nice and toasty and they all survived. Cruz was hot, but she had water and, you know, was able to get out and move around and cool herself down a decent amount. And like I said, I guess those are the two worries is losing a puppy, losing mama and not knowing you know, what to do if something, or, or maybe, you know, hindsight 2020, I should have done this sooner. Well, right. you don't know until it, it happens. So it's scary, but it was, it was pretty neat. Everything went well. Right. Right. Well, I, um, you know, man, that's a, a powerful story and a hell of a story to start the podcast. With. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I to kick it off in the first five minutes. Hey, right. We got this bad boy. I'm jumping. <laughs> Well, I I definitely can respect the fact that you did make an executive decision, man, because and I guess that's something that, you know, my wife and I, you know, typically talk about um, owning these dogs, man. And, and being in this, you know, in this industry, it's not cheap, dude, on on any kind of medical level. Um, and you have to be prepared to, to, to pay. you got to pay to play, as, as I say. You yeah. Know? I know, man. And I, so I kind of, I'll throw this out there, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. I think that you have to trust your vet. Mm -hmm. I think you have to find a vet who isn't judgmental. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like coming in, I had my female Memphis maybe a year or two ago. We're running, retriever training, we're doing marks in a big open field. She comes back, bouncing around, acting completely herself, and I go to put her in the truck, and she's, from the time I took the bird from her to the truck, two seconds, covered in blood, and I'm covered in blood, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. She must have hit barbed wire or something. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Right. Never made a sound out in the field, nothing bad. You know, you would never know if you didn't see blood. There was a huge gash. Wow. And... It's one of those things where do you go and get stitches or do you tape it up and figure it out? And I, I think some vets are quick to medicate, quick to 
charge you X amount and then send you home and say, come back in a week. Mm-hmm. And in a week they didn't do it, you know, nothing changed. So you've got to go back. Right. And, and, and I've ran into a few bets that kind of nickel and dime you and, and it's not a good feeling. So, you know, I try and be wise to it. I try and put it on them and look them in the eyes when I tell them, well, if this was your dog, what would you do? Right. And if they can't really look at me and be like, uh, all right, well then we'll wait or we'll we'll let's do it. Right. Let's, you know, I'd rather spend a hundred dollars and get in trouble, but I'm also not just going to hand over money because I love the dog and, and they play to emotions. So you got to be smart. Right. Well, it's a heated a moment thing. And I'm, you know, shout out to my vet, um, you know, Fayetteville Animal Hospital here. I just want to give them a shout out since we're talking about it. Um, you know, I really trust them, you know, with my dog's life for the same reason, man. I, you know, had an emergency one time with my dog and went to one and kind of like what you were saying, nickel, tried to nickel and dime me and I took them to um, these guys and, you know, fortunately they were able to bring my dog back to full health and, you know, and he was good. He was spunky and, I, and all of that after a few days. Um, and even with Vegas, my youngest now, you know, they were the first people I took him to. As soon as I got him from the kennel, it was a, it was a beeline to um, Fayette Animal Hospital. For that reason, I think before we get into this podcast, you know, it is important for my listeners, especially a lot of them, and I'm sure you probably experienced this too on uh, your podcast, a lot of guys are new. Are not sure. just new to bird dogs, but new to owning a dog. Yep. You know, and, and that's probably one of the first things that I would say anybody go take a look at is, look, before you go buy training supplies, you need to find a vet that you can trust. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully you don't I, have to. I agree. Fi- yeah. And hopefully you don't have to find out that you can trust or not trust them in the heat of a moment. Yeah. yeah. That, that's true, man. It. It's just part of owning a dog. Mm-hmm. I've learned some hard lessons, and I've, you know, mm-hmm. figured it out. But it's, you just want to trust them, and you want to know that, you know, I, I have 20 dogs in my kennel, and I need to work. Right. So I can't, you know, go to a vet appointment at 11 o'clock in the middle of the day. Right. In the middle of the day, I'm working and I'm grinding. Right. So my vet will set up, you know, if I make the appointment ahead of schedule, She'll have people a half an hour before everybody gets there, nice. and we'll we'll get everybody knocked out before their real day starts. And then I'm gone and I'm working. Nice. So you know things like that really help. Um, but I'm more the exception than the rule, I guess. When we're talking about just your one dog, two dog owners. <laughs> <laughs> Look, us, us regular guys like me. <laughs> yeah. Good lord, I don't even know how many I've got that I own now. Oh man. It's crazy. Well. You know, so let's let's get into that, man. Like, what what got you started in Lone Duck? I was listening to your podcast, and I think it was the last episode with the guy that you had on about the Boykins. And you mentioned, you know, you started off, you know, old school, man. You had the lab and the Crown Vic. You sound like you sound like you're from Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, so my dad was a, is a retired police officer. He was a cop for like 23 years and we would get used Crown Vicks that were old police cars. Okay. So it had like the jacked up engine that you could really get after it. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, they were fun. That was my first car growing up was a Crown Vic. 
But this dog, his name was Nelson. And Nelson was a terror, dude. He was not well-trained, great family dog, um, lovable, good with kids, good with other dogs, never met a stranger, but he wouldn't listen for, you know, anything. You had a treat, he could care less. He'll yeah. get the treat when he feels like getting the treat. Yeah. Um, and, and my dad didn't know what to do. My mom didn't know what to do. And, you know, I was eight. So when I had Nelson something clicked i don't know when i can't really put a finger on it but i remember watching one of my uncles and he had a yellow lab that he could take anywhere off leash it listened it played fetch it didn't hunt but it just did everything it rode in the front seat of the truck it it was well behaved and then here we got nelson jumping on us and taking our winter hats and running around the yard with (laughs) him and yeah eating off the counter and it's like i want to see what i can do with a dog right i want to train dogs i want to have the best dog that i can make and through high school and college i watched and read books uh, like watched the dog whisperer and read his books Mm -hmm. watched all the different dvds from all the different pro trainers that basically anything on the market i consumed right and i was a sponge and uh research pedigrees i could tell you every pedigree and who was bred to who and i just i was in it before Mm -hmm. i even had a dog and after college um i did a brief stint playing rugby in ireland got hurt yeah those were the glory days wow (laughs) rugby in ireland wow just washed up now (laughs) uh, so i did that and it was like a, a a taste of your dreams, right? Like mm-hmm. I worked my butt off all through college and, you know, being this athlete and I made it to Ireland and got to play, you know, made the team and made the starting team. And I go out in the first game and blew my hamstring. Dang. Yeah. So we did rehab over there for a little while and got sent home after, I don't know, a couple months. And, uh, I got home and, I got a job and I sold copiers and it was like, how did I go from loving college and loving playing sports to selling copiers? This just isn't my style. Right. So like probably my third paycheck, I bought a dog and (laughs) that's where my passion kicked off. Like I channeled that athleticism and, and drive and goal setting into my first real hunting dog, his name is Buck. Right. And Buck is now nine, and Buck and I traveled the country chasing the dream, yeah. building a company that we decided to call Lone Duck. Um, Lone Duck, the story, and how I named my company this Lone Duck is, it was Buck's first hunt. He was like eight months old, a little younger than eight months old. And my friend Dave and I went out and we didn't scout. We didn't, we didn't know what we were doing. And we sat on this edge of the bank and Buck was sitting next to me. And I had trained him all spring, all summer, all fall. And this is the, this is the time to shine. And the only bird that came in that day was a Drake, uh, wood duck. Hmm. And we, we fired every round in our gun and wing clipped it and just tipped it and it went down and Buck went and did his job. Nice. And it was that culmination of 
the years from Nelson and dreaming of building this dog and learning all the and watching all the DVDs and reading the books and everything came together in that moment watching him go and get this crippled wood duck right and um, that's a memory that I'll never forget and when I started developing this idea of a business that revolved around the unspoken bond and the memories we make with our gun dogs and training a dog yourself or, or sending it to someone like myself now and and working with that pro and then taking the dog out and, and experiencing the first duck and experiencing the hundredth duck and the places that these dogs take you and the people that you meet, that's the unspoken bond. And that's what lone duck is. Right. And it's evolved from a t-shirt and hat company to social media where we're doing training tips and kind of behind the scenes of a day, day to day as a dog trainer mm-hmm. and, we still sell gear. We still have hats and leather products and T-shirts and all that jazz. But our main focus is training hunting dogs, running contests, and being someone that people can look up to and learn from so that they can do it themselves. Right, right, right. I mean, and, and that's a that's really a tribute to, you know, your drive, your passion, you know, especially – from athlete to athlete, I, I ran track in college on um, the 400 meter hurdles. So I definitely understand where you're coming from as far as having that really, really, really high goal set and being able to kind of refocus that and rechannel it into something that you're really, um, you know, passionate about. I mean, I, I hate to say it, man. You sound like ludicrous. I'm from Atlanta and that's, that's literally the ludicrous story here, you know, working in, in, you know, selling stuff out of the back of your trunk yep. in order to um, in order to make it. And that is that is the American dream. If you want to talk about it like that. I mean, you decided yep. that you weren't going to settle and really get into something and something that is non-conventional at that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, I don't even necessarily think about it anymore like that. But it is when you look at it, it's like. When you think about all the things, I mean, we slept, I used to sleep in a tent on the side of the road and show up to a hunt test with a booth full of, you know, hats and t-shirts and a place I've never met anybody and shake hands and sell, sell a bunch of shirts. Wow. That's wild. But those, those experiences introduced me to some of the greatest people that have opened their, you know, opened up to me and become best friends and. It's taken me a lot of really cool places, been able to hunt a lot of cool places and, you know, meet a lot of great dogs and mm-hmm. see see the world. It's pretty neat. Well, that's, I mean, that's dope, man. So, um, you know, when we, when you talk about your, I guess, rise and, and, and claim to fame, now, were you working with a mentor and, and like, how did that process go? Did you even, or you just pretty much started from the ground up? Sure. So... To give you the, I'll go quick. So I sold copiers, sold business insurance after that. Mm-hmm. And during the business insurance years is when I I would go to businesses and I'd try and sell them insurance, right? Right. So I'm going and speaking to CFOs, CEOs, owners of businesses, and I was learning that these people are no different than me. Mm-hmm. You think, you know, at, at 23 years old, you're thinking this president of this big company it is 
untouchable. Right. You know, but after sitting with him and BSing, he's got a duck decoy on his, you know, uh, shelf. Mm-hmm. Hey, you like duck hunting? Yeah, I'm a big DU sponsor. I do this. I go here. I go there. Boom. Common ground. Right. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, how'd you get started in your business? Man, I was 23 years old and I just decided I would do X and X turned into this. And it show, it gave me a taste of what entrepreneurism would be like. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started Lone Duck. That's when the company was formed and we made a lot of, I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of things backwards and forwards and didn't know which end was up and spent a lot of money that I probably shouldn't have. And I've learned lessons and, uh, but I wouldn't change it, I guess. Um, so after that, I quit that job because I was working crazy hours right. and I went to work for an oil and auto supply company. Okay. And this place gave me a 2002 PT cruiser. So I'm rolling deep in a PT cruiser. <laughs> <laughs> Making phone calls uh, about Lone Duck all day long. So I'm on the road all day and uh-huh. I'm grinding for Lone Duck all day long on their dime while I'm bouncing around selling auto supplies. Wow. And the company starts to actually take off. Like Lone Duck is actually starting to take off because I've got way more time to devote to it. Right. And the next phase, um, and, and during this whole period, I would take my vacation time and I would go south. And I would drive from New York to Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, Missouri, Mississippi, and I would go to these events and set up my booth and sell on the weekends, train with a pro all week, sleep on his couch or in a guest room and learn from him. And then I would sell the following weekend at a hunt test and Sunday night drive home and work Monday morning. And that's kind of how I started getting mentored by some of the best people in the country Mm -hmm. on training. Mm -hmm. And after that job, I got an offer from, he's a friend of mine, you know, I'm sleeping on his couch. Hey, why don't after, you know, this summer start in August, come work for me. So I quit my job, moved down to South Carolina to the middle of nowhere and became a full-time dog trainer, full-time lone duck jump in with both feet and he and I were training dogs every single day, you know, crazy hours and I honed my craft and right. I got to learn a ton. And after about a little less than a year, I moved home and started training full time for myself and everything. I mean, it's kind of just grown from there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, you know, with these trainers that you were working with, you know, are there any that you would like to say, I guess, stood out to you and, or, or is there anything I would like to know, you know, out of all that experience, you know, what were some of the things that the, the, um, I guess training tips or something, if you want to go down that route that resonated with you, like, you know, for me, there's certain things that I always keep in my back pocket as far as training a Labrador, right? What were some of those things for you? Oh, (laughs) maybe that was a broad question. No, no, no. Yeah. I feel like we got to break it down a little. Um, I think being able to look at all the different trainers that I got to work with throughout that period and the guy I worked for, Mm -hmm. I got to see, 
goods and bads. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my parents taught me at a young age, like, look at others as an example, whether it's a good example or in a bad example, and try and do better or, or whatever, right? Right. So I saw some really great dog training. I saw some really great dog trainers. I saw some really great dog trainers that were really tough on dogs. And I would say, all right, I like what he's doing here, but I don't like that. Mm-hmm. So how do I how do I replicate what he's doing that I like, but do it a little bit differently so I get a different response from the dog? Right. Um, so that's one thing that I learned. I, I just I would pick up on body language. I would pick up on cues. I would pick up on mannerisms that these pros are, you know, doing and moving with the dog. Um, and that kind of helps form how I do things. Right. I think some, some general things that I learned from great trainers, like the guy that I just had on my podcast, his name's Blaine Tarnacki. Mm-hmm. He's a really good friend of mine. His family opens up their home to me still. And I go down there and we work together and have fun. And, you know, he's always learning. Right. And he's, he's been doing it, you know, twice as long as I have. And he's still making phone calls to people who he thinks are better than him. Right. And, hey, I got this going on. What would you do? Right. Hey, I'm trying this. What do you think of this? And that's how I look at it. I'm a constant sponge. Until the day I die, I want to learn more so that I can hone my skills. And I think if you act that way and, and be that way where you're always learning, whether it's dog training or hunting or shooting or school or work, whatever it is, if you're always trying to be a sponge and pick things up from people, you're going to get better. Right. And what not to pick up from people, too. Right, right. Um, so, I don't know, patience is key, being patient. I'm not always perfect at that. I try, you know, it, the dogs never do things on purpose, really, to, to say screw you, mm-hmm. you know? It's it's not common. It's Look, it seems it's like it, though. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Same here. And, and some days are better than others, but they're right. really telling you that they don't understand. Right. And I think if I get frustrated, it's like, all right, I'm doing something wrong that they aren't understanding this. How can I break this down and simplify for them so that they understand what I'm trying to communicate? Right. And uh, so I think that those are some key little little tips i guess if we want to dive in more maybe we could get more specific well yeah hey look i i definitely want to get more specific because what it what it leads up to is your whole theme and something that i i frequently hear in your podcast is the unspoken bond which when you talk about the word unspoken we're talking about communication whether it's literal communication like vocals or body language and the subliminals. So yeah, I definitely want to get specific if you don't mind. No, not at all. Let it rip, man. So when we're talking about things that you don't want to do, so the both of us have been around enough trainers and seen enough good and bad to where you can kind of formulate, you know, your own kind of training style. But one thing that I notice so much of is the like it's a lot of force put onto and I'm speaking specifically about Labradors. Um there there's so many people that put so much unnecessary force it seems to me on the dogs. And you know, for me, I don't think it takes that much to get a Labrador 
to do the job that it already wants to do. You know, it seems to me like there's so much collar pressure, and I don't want this to be a collar conversation, but it just seems like that's always a result to get the dog to do something that you want it to do instead of laying off of it, laying off the collar and, and really just breaking down, you know, the objectives. To me, Labradors are extremely intelligent dogs, you know, but... I just don't understand why there's so much force applied to a dog that already innately knows or innately can do what you want it to do. Does that make sense? 100%. Yeah. Uh, I think that's kind of what I was talking about earlier in terms of, you know, watching people and learning how I don't want to be. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's one thing that I never really liked is watching a dog get out of the truck and tail between the legs. It doesn't want to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's afraid. But then again, dude, I've done this a lot, and there are some dogs that just look like that. Yeah. So my my thing is you want to look at the whole truck. If you're looking at a specific person, right, mm-hmm. you want to look at the whole truck. If I've got an 18-hole truck, if 17 out of the 18 come out looking happy and one looks like crap it's probably mostly the dog right right like the dog just has a poor attitude you know the dog just maybe or it's in a phase of training where it is kind of heavy pressure or the dog's confused and we're working through it and then a month from now that dog's going to figure it out and the confidence is going to skyrocket you know things like that there's always that kind of weird scenario Mm -hmm. but if 17 out of the 18 come out with the tail between the legs hunkered down looking spooky that's not a good sign. Right. Um, you know, I think to maybe get dig in a little more, like, I agree with you. I think that there is a lot of unneeded pressure put on dogs. I think if you create a positive environment, if you teach before horse, if you show them what you're looking for and show them what you're looking for and they understand what you're looking for, then you can apply pressure then the dog's going to learn how to turn that pressure off and work in a more positive way. Right. But since on one hand, I agree, like I, I'm trying to maybe break this down on a, on a more detailed level. Like, yeah, you're fine. I, I think it's important to force dogs. Yeah. I think it's important to apply pressure mm-hmm. because dogs learn from it. So if it's taught properly and with patience and without, exceeding the level of pressure that is needed to get the desired response. Right. I think dogs really learn quickly and thrive on it because it's black and white. This right. is okay. This is not okay. Right. Bang, 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 bang. Do it right. 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 And I, and they are like, hell yeah, this is awesome. I'm doing it right. Right. And then if they slip out, nope, Nick, boom, doing it right again. And so they, they get greater compliance um, and you, you can – mold and shape a dog with the pressure. I think some people are quick to do it, and I might be able to point out instances in myself where I've been too quick on it. Mm -hmm. It happens. Right. Well, we're human. Right. Nobody's perfect. Right. But I think if you're looking at it from, let me teach you, dog. Let me show you. Let me show you again. Let's make it positive. Let me show you again. All right, let's put two things together now that you've both learned and and you have taught the collar properly 
or you've taught a choke lead or a wonder lead mm -hmm. or you know you slip a wonder lead on a dog for the first time and go to cranking on it it's you know that's just as spooky to a dog as Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, a, and I'm a huge Wonder League fanatic. But yes, to your point, there is a level of way in which you go about applying that. 100%. Absolutely. So, and even verbal pressure. I mean, you can. I scolded these puppies the other night. They peed on the rug, man. I grabbed him so quick, he didn't know what happened to him. Tossed him outside. Right. He finished peeing. I praised him completely. Right. You know. Right. It's black and white. That's not okay. Go outside, go potty, buddy. Right. And you get treats and you get love and, and everything's good. Right. But that they learn like that. Um, I just don't think if you keep a level head in your patience, and your patient, excuse me, and you, what I try and explain to people is the least amount of pressure to get the desired response. Right. So if you've got leash pressure and you pop that lead, the wonder lead or a slip lead or a choke chain or whatever you're using, you just lightly flick it and the dog falls into heel. Well, that's the least amount of pressure you needed. Right. Well, now when he sees a bicyclist or a runner on the other side or another dog or a squirrel runs across the road and he goes and yanks you, your little flick of the wrist isn't going to do jack. Right. So you need to up the ante and pop him a little bit more. Right. And so your level of pressure increased. Well, the rest of the walk doesn't mean you need to keep popping them at that in, you know level. Mm -hmm. You back back down to his normal working level. Right. So that's the same with the e collar, same with the healing stick, same with the wonder lead. You use the amount of pressure needed to get the desired response. Absolutely. I mean, you couldn't have said that any more perfect, man. Um, and I, I really appreciate you, you know, bringing that to light because and I, and I have had to make adjustments to my own. I guess, training style and the way that I apply certain things. You know, when I first came in, man, I was all positive, 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 positive. And every dog doesn't respond off of that. To your point, 100%. you know, to your point, look, it, it needs to be pretty black and white. And so I, I had to learn, you know, oh, however long it was ago, look, <laughs> A, when a dog is throwing you a middle finger, a dog is throwing you a middle finger, period. And, right. and and that action has to be corrected. You know, I think so much of uh, dog training nowadays, there's this, this fear of hurting the dog. And so it seems to me so many people promote the, the extra positive reinforcement. Correct me if I'm wrong. And we forget that, you know, there's some things that are just very clear to a dog. <laughs> like right, you said, yeah. like, you know, even with this puppy, I had to do the same thing. You know, the little joker messed around and, and it was my fault. I wasn't, you know, necessarily paying attention to him. He messed around and pissed on my hardwood floor. I still have to correct you for that. You know, and, and sit him outside and things like that. Now, the sure. the the... The catch to that is always the yin and the yang. Yep. And that's with with house training, that is with with inside training. I mean, with outside training, that's with anything. Um, sure. And we need, you know, we need not forget that a, a dog doesn't know, man. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, we have to teach him how to know. We have to teach him what is expected of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so... 
when people ask, and this is another thing that I really like that you do, when you had those puppies, I was watching your um, your Instagram video, and you had a pigeon, and all those puppies were just kind of crowding around that pigeon and getting it, getting it, getting it, getting it, getting it. Getting it. And, and I really appreciate that because so many people, I guess, are curious, are, are so scary about introducing a dog to birds. But my thought is, why the hell not? Right. You know, let's get them on early as long as they don't get hurt. You And, and everything that you had about that scenario, it was a very controlled situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I- that was, there was one puppy out of the group that was nervous, and I didn't push it. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't make him go up to it. I teased him with it. I, I did it. I tried to get one or two other puppies around him that were enthusiastic, and after like two days, boom, he was just like the rest of them, right. jacked up for it. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, you, it's all about socializing with that kind of thing and making it a positive experience and... You know, sooner or later, if you bought a well-bred dog, mm-hmm. right? I think that's kind of key number one is do your research and and get the best puppy you can afford. Don't just, you know, close your eyes and scroll down Craigslist and get a purebred AKC lab and hope that it's, you know, not going to be a couch potato because, you know, they could just be. You know, right. parents and grandparents could have been grand couch potato champions. <laughs> uh and so, you know, I've trained dogs that didn't like to swim. Right. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? Right. Can't swim, doesn't like to swim. Right. And, and um, you do something so, in, in light of that. Um, and Blaine said this, too. Um, in light of that, that's a good example of what you guys also were talking about, which is um, knowing what buttons to push with the puppy. Basically, if that puppy's got more go teaching it not to go, but, you know, no teaching it when to stop and vice versa. Yeah. I think that maybe would be more like advanced stuff as they age, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think you're just in the puppy stage. If we're really talking about that zero to six months, Mm -hmm. right. We're talking about teaching, developing, you, you know, using its natural instincts to drive them. So yeah, they might be afraid of water, but, We've built their retrieve drive in the house, down a hallway, in right. the yard, and all of a sudden they want to be with us, and they want that bumper so bad, they give into that fear, and the drive comes out and pushes them to go retrieve. Right. Um, you know, taking them people, places, and things, so that they are put in situations that might make them nervous, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden it's not scary anymore. Like that puppy I was just talking about with the pigeon, like you know. Over time, in a positive way, right. he learned that this is a great thing. Right. So meeting new people, new, you know, even things like hardwood floors you right. know, can spook a dog or anything, dude, anything. Yeah. So you're just so <laughs> Taking them everywhere. Uh-huh. Yes, sir. And, and I really just like that you acknowledge that. So, you know, just going on a little bit. And, and you having all of this travel experience, um, when I first met you, you mentioned that you were, obviously you're up in New York, but you also traveled down here to South Carolina. You know, what are, you know, talk about the reasons why you do that and kind of what those benefits are from working up north, what you're doing up there, and then coming down to the south in a, in a different part of the year. Yeah, 
Yeah, for sure. So I'm originally from the Syracuse, New York area, central New York, smack dab in the middle of the state. Um, so when I tell people I'm from New York, they automatically think New York City. And mm-hmm. yeah, no, no joke, I've been there literally two times in my life. So, <laughs> uh, you know, not even close. Yeah. But um, so I'm from there. That's where my family is. That's where my sister and brother and nieces and parents and aunts and uncles and everybody that I you know, grew up with, that's where I'm from. That's my home. And I love it. We've got beautiful training properties that we can be at. I've got a nice indoor kennel facility. We're looking at, you know, in the next 12 months to expanding to a bigger facility. Um, that's, that's HQ. That's headquarters. That's home. Um, but the downfall of central New York is it's crappy weather in the winter, freezing Mm -hmm. cold, ponds are frozen you can't train and i rely on training gun dogs that's my life that's my livelihood so uh, really good friends really good clients the the dog crews that had the puppy it's the co-owner they invited us to come and live in south carolina in the charleston area and introduced me to landowners and i've made more friends who've invited me to train on their land and so the dogs are down here with me from January till May. And in May, it's going to get too hot in South Carolina, and it's going to get beautiful in Syracuse yep. at home and keep rolling through the summer. So the benefit of that is I can give these dogs 12 months of training, right? year-round training, versus if I just stayed in New York, you know, you really can't do much with snow. Um, it's just not, it's not feasible. And then even in the summertime down here in South Carolina, you know, you can still work, but it's hot. It's so hot, you're working man. from the immediate sun comes up, you're already out in the field until like 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. And then by 10 a.m. you've got to get in the shade and cool things down and then come back out at 5 o'clock and work till dark. Right. So having that balance of shooting up north and training spring, summer, fall, and then coming down here in the wintertime has been phenomenal for business, phenomenal for the dogs, and uh, very thankful and fortunate. Right, right, right. And I mean, and you, trust me, first of all, I can tell you exactly, uh, you know, how hot it gets because it's already heating up down <laughs> here in Georgia. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely already it heating not. up. And, you know, for me, the, the seasons, or I'm sorry, the training season is, at least for my lab, is starting to get cut down really short, you know, and, and, and I want to kind of elaborate spring training and stuff, especially on my podcast, because I think that's important and it's definitely most relevant nowadays. But, dude, I find myself spending more time, you know, working my pointer because after 45 minutes to an hour, my lab is shot, man. And yeah. He, 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 yeah, but I mean, think about it. That's a long time to be working a dog. That's And that's just me literally walking around in the backyard. Yeah. Like, that's a long time. Yes, you're absolutely right. I don't, I have to take him in and leave him on the inside. So, you know, I'm left doing a whole hell of a lot of barrel work and stuff like that with my pointer because he's just kind of looking like, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what else is there? I'll go. I'll find myself going on a good long walk. I get off work, go on a long walk, and by the time we get back, 
and it's a shaded area, but by the time we get back, that little lab is like, yo, I'm spent, man. Yep. You know, so you got it made as far as, you know, what you're what you're able to do um, as far as the versatility in your training setup. Now, I, I would imagine that that really speeds up the learning curve, you know, with with all of your puppies, really, because it, because they're getting that year-round training, you're not necessarily having to put them up all the time. They're not only getting 30, 45 minutes, and which you're not going to train a puppy that long, but they're getting a long and a whole lot of a, a whole lot of training yep. all the time. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, to, to speak about this litter, like my little two dudes, I own one of them, and then the other guy is staying with me until duck season. They've already been swimming. They're already retrieving bumpers out of the water. They're, which, you know, the dogs that got sent home to New York and Connecticut and Massachusetts and mm-hmm. Maryland, it's freezing up there still. Right. There might not be snow on the ground, but that water is ice cold. Right. So you're not putting a 12-week pup, you know, 12-week-old puppy in, in that water. It's cold. Right. You don't want to create a bad habit. You don't want to have a bad taste in their mouth because the first time they touched water, it was icicles. Um, so I'm lucky, you know, that's just a mini example of, yes, being down here in the wintertime is smart and great. Right, right. There's a few dogs that basically live with me year round and train year round that are clients and they see a significant, uh, benefit from right. training year round first right. being stuck in New York and not being able to do much. Right. Uh, and that's same with my personal dogs. I mean, we would stop and training kind of excuse me, for my personal dogs, mm-hmm. basically ceases during duck season. Right. They might get one or two days a week of doing something, but we're hunting, and then when I'm not hunting, I'm training the client dogs, and, like, that's it. Right. The, my dogs can kind of take a break and just hunt. Um, so they have that little break off, and now we get down here, and it's game time. Back to training, back to full tilt, and we clean things up. And, you know, if I didn't have that, we wouldn't be training until mid-March, right. early April. Right. And that's just too much time off for a dog to really achieve the most I want to achieve with a dog, you know? Right. Absolutely, man. Well, I mean, and that, that also just leads me into my next my next question because I really also want to talk and, and kind of pick your brain about the observations that you may have had between dogs that are just hunt testing and trialing versus dogs that are hunting versus dogs that are doing both. Can you kind of speak about that and some of your observations, strengths and weaknesses? Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. And hmm. so there are phenomenal hunting dogs Mm -hmm. that would struggle in a hunt test because a great hunting dog has a little bit more independence Mm-hmm. A little bit more, you know, I'm going to follow my nose and trust myself more than I trust you. Right. And in hunt test, I've got to have a little more control over that dog. No, blow my whistle, sit, cast, you know, show, tell them where to go, right? Be a little more robotic. And so a hunting dog is generally going to be a little bit more independent and figure things out on their own. And right. that makes them great. Right. 
the hunt test field trial dog is going to be a little bit more robotic and a little bit more reliant on you as the handler and owner. Right. And I think there's a really huge benefit of having both. Why can't I have both? Right. Um, I Memphis, my female, who's four, is a master hunter. Um, she's an extremely, extremely talented hunting, or excuse me, hunt test dog. In the hunting environment, she can do everything I tell her to do. Right. But we had a really interesting experience as follows. I think duck opener with my brother and we knocked the first bird down. She marked it. We actually had Kevin's other dog. My, my brother and I co-host the podcast. So mm-hmm. Talking like you know him, but you kind of do from listening to the podcast. I just listen to him, yep, for sure. So uh, Kevin co-hosts the podcast with me and Kevin's little golden retriever birdie, I let her go and get it. She can't find it. So now the bird is nowhere near where Memphis saw it. So I send Memphis in, and she goes, she can't find it. And I'm telling her, hey, hunt it up. And she's looking at me like, screw you. I don't know what you're talking about. What is that? (laughs) And it occurred to me, after four years of owning and training this dog, I never once taught her the hunt it up command. Because we don't do it in a hunt test. Mm -hmm. There's no hunt it up. Go where I tell you to go and pick it up or mark it yourself. Run out there, go and get it. Right. And now in this real hunting scenario where we're in kind of a beaver pond and there's, I'm sure that duck dove and I'm sure he was up underneath like a little root system or mm-hmm. oh, wherever. God. I just I just had that problem, but go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure it was right there. It couldn't have, but we couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. And I've got a master hunter, phenomenal dog. Anybody who sees her, loves her and is impressed not to pat myself on the back, I'm more saying she's awesome. Yeah. It still failed me because I didn't do enough realistic hunting training. Right. So I feel like you have to balance and massage that hunting dog, hunt test competitor, and have a little bit of a happy medium in the middle where you don't lose all your control because they've gone too independent. Right. But you need a little bit of independence so that they can feel confident to go and dig it out and and find it themselves. Right, right. Now, just on that scenario alone, my very last duck hunt of this season, very last, I was hunting with my buddy uh, Jordan, and when I tell you that exact same happened, the duck dove, my dog could not find it. How do you? How would you go about training a dog to be able to do so? Or is that something that's just kind of, they just kind of figure it out? I definitely think it's, we can train it, okay. but I think there, there's definitely a piece that if you've hunted them enough and he's dealt with enough, uh, ducks that dive on him, you know, he'll figure it out himself. Mm-hmm. Um, did the duck dive and like he starts spinning in a circle hunting for it and the duck just swam 20 yards away, popped back up and kept cruising or the duck dove grabbed onto something and never came back. It up never came back up. Yeah, see, that's tough, dude. That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you really can't train for it. I mean, yeah. that there's some special dogs that just have that nose yeah. that maybe dive under the water and grab it, and I've heard those stories. I get messages and people tell me the story about stuff like that all the time. That's a tough one to, right. to teach. Right. 
to kind of teach a dog to stay in the hunt area on a duck that's diving on them and popping back up and diving on them and popping back up, there's two things you can do. One, for the more average Joe, you can take like a weight, a duck weight or a, a some sort of pulley system weight, mm-hmm. throw that out in the water with a long rope attached to it. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end of the rope is a bumper. So you've got the bumper in one hand, you pitch it out, dog goes and gets it. Now the rope is attached to the bumper, which is floating on top of the water. The rope goes down the water to the pulley weight system, and then the rope comes through to you on land. Right. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. So now your dog's swimming for this bumper, and it's floating on top of the water, and as he's about to lunge for it, you pull your rope, and that buoy bumper goes under the water, okay. disappears. Okay. okay. So now he's spinning in circles like what the heck just happened i have no idea what happened right hunting 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 he starts spinning out you let go of the rope buoy comes back to the top of the water and he's spinning 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 boom there it is okay i'm going back for it and you pull it back under the water and it basically just teaches him to circle and look and right. wait for that duck to resurface the other way to do it is actually use a real duck and tether it tape it, whatever you got to do to make the duck pretty immobile but still able to swim. Yep. And you put that duck out in the water and let the duck be a duck and the dog's <laughs> going to figure it out. Hey, the birds break the dog, right? <laughs> That's right. Birds, birds make a bird dog. Hey. Oh, Anthony Farrell quote. Hey. <laughs> and we love Anthony. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's the man, dude. That is my buddy, man. Well, yep. that, you know, that's something that I knew that I was going to have to work on um, this summer, you know, I, I've got a two and a half year old dog and he does great. Like I, um, I'm actually very impressed with his performance, you know, so far as I've had him, but that one just threw him and I can't really knock him for it. The duck sure. dove and never came back up. Right. You know, now one thing I would like to, again, not bragging on myself, I'm bragging on my dog, 95% of game that gets lost, he recovers it. Yeah. I would say 90, 95%. Um, but that one just threw him, man. And I can tell you, you kind of know that look when your dog is like, buddy, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm out. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, the duck could have dove and been 30 yards in a different part of the pond and tucked up into a muskrat hole or something. Right. I mean, the wind's blowing the other way. There's no way to track it. I mean, it's just is what it is. You right. can't be perfect. Right, right. And we can't expect our dogs to be perfect. And I'm sometimes at fault for hoping that my dog's going to be perfect. But I don't, I don't I, think that's a fault, man. I, I, I totally believe that if you keep the expectation of your dog high as all get out, that dog will more than likely exceed those expectations, man. They know what you want. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah. I 100% agree. I, you know, so I wouldn't even call that a fault, man. I mean, you know, there are some things that are unreasonable, but most of that is handler error. You know, sure. I, yeah. but I mean, dude, these, these guys are, are, you know, complete athletes and, you know, you and I both coming from that world, they get it, man. They definitely yeah. understand it. And again, going back to that unspoken bond, your dogs stay with you long enough. I, I feel like they can almost read your mind like, all right, this is what Pops wants. 
Yep. Hundred percent agree. So you know we um we're still in the 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 hunting test portion of you know kind of the things that I wanted to know, man. I I actually want to know about some of your accolades and you know you can you can do some self promotion and just talk about some of the accomplishments that you've made and some of the things that you may have fallen short on and why do you think you fell short on them? Sure. Um, man, we've had a good run. We've, uh, so Memphis, my female, she's a master hunter, um, which, so they, I'll break it down. So maybe they're, like you said, a lot of our listeners are new or haven't done this stuff. So mm-hmm. there's AKC hunt tests and AKC is the American Kennel Club. Right. So AKC hunt test, and that is a pass-fail. You right. and your dog are being judged to a standard. Right. If you meet or exceed that standard, you pass. If you don't meet or exceed that standard, you fail. Um, so it's it's not a competition mm-hmm. in, of sorts, like a first, second, or third. It's a pass-fail. Right. Um, and they, that is junior hunter, senior hunter, and master hunter. And then once a year, there's a master national. And so the dogs who've qualified for the master national, and you need to pass six master tests in one calendar year uh, from July to July, if you pass six in one year, your dog qualifies for the master national. And the best master dogs in the country go to that event, and it changes every year. So next year, it's going to be in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're working to qualify for that. Uh, Cruz is working to qualify for that. Um, I've got a few other dogs in the docket that are working towards their master hunter. Um, so Ember, Chesapeake, mm-hmm. there's a dog named Safe that I really love and a little dog named May, which I mean, she's going for her first senior test this weekend, but okay. I'm already looking at her like we need to run master. This dog is so talented. Okay. Her. Um, so we're, you know, if she stays in training, I would say by the fall she'll be running master tests and passing them without a, a problem. She's right. just that naturally gifted and, and gets it. Right. Um, we've ran HRC which is the Hunting Retriever Club, mm-hmm. and that is under the UKC. Yes, sir. So UKC is United Kennel Club. Right. So in the United Kennel Club, well, excuse me, so HRC, you've got started, seasoned, and finished. And started is a basically like a junior hunter. They've got to do singles on mm-hmm. land and water. You can hang on to the dog. Um, senior and seasoned. It's a double on land and a double on water, meaning the dog sees two birds go down, boom, bird goes down, boom, bird goes down. Go get it, go get it, bring it back. And they got to be steady. They've got to watch another dog work. Mm-hmm. So they've got to honor another dog. And they have to be able to run a blind retrieve. And a blind retrieve is me and you are duck hunting. I shoot a duck, you shoot a duck. But your dog is watching you and sees your bird fall but my bird over here is, you know, 70 yards away and he didn't see it. Right. So we've got to send him on a blind and he's got to stop on a whistle and move with our casts, like hand signals, overs and backs. Uh, so that's senior and then master and finished are triples, 
blinds, double blinds, honor another doll. I mean, they can throw anything that they want to at you. Right. AKC hunt tests are a little less strict and a little less realistic, or like they lack realistic hunting. So they're not as, like you basically stand next to the dog, hold a fake gun, and the dog does the work. HRC really tries to focus on realistic hunting. So you might have the dog working off a dog stand. You have to shoot a gun that has blanks in it. So you're shooting and racking the shells and blowing a duck call and things like that. So they try and make it a little more realistic. Right. Um, and then there's field trials, which Memphis and I have dabbled in without much success. Uh, and field trials are our first, second, third, fourth place. Mm-hmm. You either win it or you don't. This is my dog and versus your dog. That's right. And it's it's extremely challenging. The things that we ask these dogs to do at that level is mind-blowing, dude. Mm-hmm. Absolutely mind-blowing mm-hmm. what a dog is capable of and what trainers are capable to get out of a dog and bring them to that level. So... Um, we don't really play on that level. We don't focus on it. We focus on hunt tests right. and building great hunting companions and hunting dogs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would do it with my female because I love her and I, I want to challenge her and take her to the furthest place as I can go. But as far as my clientele, the people who that that's more hunting and hunt tests. Right. So, right. And, and I mean, that makes sense, man. Um, would you would you even say that as far as breeding, hunt tests are a little bit better as far as um, validating the 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 litter or the uh, the dam and the sire? Does that make sense? Like my dog versus your dog, that's cool um, as far as competition. But to be able to run a dog according to a standard and say they can do X, Y, and Z. Well, so, all right, I see where you're going with it. So I think if I'm following you, <clears throat> basically what you're saying, if you don't mind me reiterating, mm-hmm. is you're asking me if I'd prefer a hunt test dog versus a field trial dog pedigree-wise. Yes. Okay. So in my opinion, they're both good. So a field trial dog, if you if your dog is an FC, if it's won a field trial and accumulated enough points and has become a field champion, that dog has won and beat out 60 other dogs on multiple weekends. Mm-hmm. So that means he's a bad to the bone or she's a bad to the bone dog. Absolutely. Where I might be able to take a dog and pass a test that, how do I want to say this? Because it's still a huge accomplishment. Yeah, on both ends. I don't want to take that away from either one. Right, I'm not either. So a hunt test, you can get a dog through them because they pass the standard. Right. But maybe they lack confidence, or maybe they did this, or maybe they, they did that. But they did enough to get a pass. That doesn't fly in a field trial. You're either great or you are out. <laughs> oh, um, I look at, in a pedigree, I like to have a little mix of field trial and hunt tests. Okay. So as long as dogs... And what and the reason is, I if a dog is capable of passing master tests, 
and passing field trials and, and, and winning field trials, that dog is intelligent, athletic, healthy. They're a team player for the most part. Um, they're, they're able to accomplish something, and they're going to have a higher likelihood of passing on the genes to the next round of puppies that they're going to be intelligent, they're going to be a team player, they're going to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you just get one that is a purebred setter, purebred lab, purebred chassis, purebred pointer, yeah, purebred, but the parents and grandparents and great-grandparents didn't do jack. Mm-hmm. So you're rolling the dice that your dog's going to have any talent. Or they might be talented, but they're stubborn. Mm-hmm. Or they might be hard-mouthed. Or they might be vocal and whiny. Or, you know, I mean, in the pointer world, I'm working with a field trialer who runs setters and pointers. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to give away a beautiful setter because her tail hooks over her back. Mm-hmm. Well, for us hunting guys who just want a grouse or a woodcock or a quail dog, I don't really care. I don't care. That, that dog is pointing. Right. But that's not going to win a field trial. All right. That tail has to be rigid. Well, it's, it's not going to because of the style. Right. I mean, 100%. that's but something the that they're rating. If you're on. looking for a first place like he is, what's the point of keeping a dog who, because of that little flaw, is never going to win? Right. Right. So for us hunting guys, that doesn't matter as much, but but it does matter to him. But to that point, the whole point I'm trying to make is that dog who has that crooked tail that's never going to win and never going to get trialed, she's going to probably throw puppies with a crooked tail. Right. So he doesn't want to breed her either. He wants to breed that, you know, get that out of it and not breed her and just sell her to a house that's going to hunt her and love her. Right. Does right. that make sense? Oh, absolutely. So we're trying to breed, yeah, we're trying to breed what we're looking for in the most best dog ever well and and it goes back to you brought you you took the words um out of uh, right out of my mouth out of the folks that i look up to neil carter and them you know mom and daddy is gonna give that dog its tail and we we've kind of jumped to the pointer world for a second but yeah you know mom and daddy is gonna give that dog its tail mom and daddy is gonna give that dog every physical attribute and there is nothing that you can do you know um right you know, one thing that I, I saw at a NASTRA trial, matter of fact, was it was a, a setter that was, it was dang good. I mean, really, I mean, that note had a nose on it, but that tail was hooked. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So, I mean, yeah. when you're talking about a field trial, you're going to get docked for style points on that. Yeah. Yeah. You're never going to win. Right. Um, now, as yeah, far as actually, bird finding ability. Huh. Yeah, my little setter Andy has that little hook tail, which mm-hmm. again I could care less. Right, you're just hunting. But, right, exactly. Right, right, right. So you know, and I guess since we're we're in the whole point around now, you know, you and I, we were talking the other week. It, we have a lot of similarities on on you know pointers, setters, and Labradors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no doubt, man. So what do you as as a, as the trainer that you are, the history that you, you've had, what do you think it is, man? And I like to ask people this all the time. What do you think it is that makes pointers, and, and by pointers, English pointers, but what do you think it, it is that made pointers and setters so great and hold up so long in the field trial hall of fame? What do you think that is? That's breeding. Okay. Hands down breeding. Okay. 
Um, you know, I think we could throw other breeds, German short hairs, uh, Britneys, um, Vichlas, Weimariners. They were all bred mainly for foot hunting. Mm-hmm. The setters and the pointers kind of spurred off into this field trial game where they wanted to run four or 500 yards and carry a cast and run a huge ass field mm-hmm. and be way out in front of a horse and hold it. Right. And you, not to say you can't have a short hair that does it or a Vishla who does it or a whatever, but they're less likely. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're seeing these really strong lines of setters and English pointers who are bred to run big. Right. and win trials right. and if they aren't they're getting sold and not bred and that's it they're out of the pool right. now you're only breeding the best big running stylish dog and the ones out of that litter who don't make it don't get bred and they get you know sent to family members and house dogs and whatnot right so um Excuse me, one second. I'm hearing a puppy whimper in the background. And <laughs> Take your time. Probably got to go potty. No, we're good. Um, I'm just gonna let him out real quick. Okay. So does that make sense? Though, like, yeah, it it makes perfect. Pedigree. It makes perfect sense. Um, and I'm glad you said that. And and I asked because you know, selfishly, I've got my own you know pointer here. You've got a setter, and maybe you've noticed this in your setter. Are you running a Llewellyn? What are, what do you got? Uh, no, nah, she's just a regular English setter. Okay. Uh, I, I was, I was really yeah, just curious to know. Yeah, she's off of, it's Grouse Ridge Lines mm-hmm. and a guy, it's called Lightning Flash Setter. So okay. he's an old timer in New York. Both of them are from New York, actually. Okay. And they, they bred field trial setters and kind of walking setters. So mm-hmm. your Grouse Woods, your Woodcock Woods, mm-hmm. um, and Andy, on some days she runs pretty big, but not big enough to ever run a field trial. I mean, she'll go out 200 yards and, and hold point till I get there. But for the most part, she's kind of a walking dog. Right, right. Which is, you know, that's totally fine. Um, you All know, I ever wanted. Hey, look, I, I want horses one day, but, you know, that's in the future. Right now, I just need the dog to do you know, just hold long enough for me to get there. But, you know, the basis to my, my question was, um, I wonder if that's a bit of that primal instinct almost, you know, that's in these setters and these pointers, because even my little joker now, you know, Bob, when I tell you, I feel like I'm not doing any kind of training and this little joker is teaching himself (laughs) doing it. Yeah. He's just doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I know, dude. And I, so again, that's pedigree. That's Mm -hmm. good breeding. That's good instinct. We're breeding for instinct. If the dog doesn't naturally have point Mm -hmm. or retrieve drive or love to swim or pick up birds or, you know, whatever the, whatever we're looking for, right? Whatever breed specific task we're looking for, if it doesn't have it, it doesn't have it. Right. So you did your research and found a puppy that's going to be pre-built, predisposed because of parents and grandparents to be a badass. Right. And guess what? He's a badass. <laughs> yes, so, sir. I mean, that's cool. 
Are you looking to field trial him? Is that a goal of yours? Or yeah. So this is, this, yeah, that's my goal. So I'm going to run him in Nashra for sure. Um, I know I'm going to run him Nashra for sure um, up until I get a horse. Now, my next goal is to run him in the um, the Georgia-Florida shooting dog handlers trial, which is considered the black bird dog handlers trials down here in Thomasville, Georgia. Um, that field trial was dope, Bob. I mean, when I tell you dog work like I've never seen before. No way. And it is all, it's all. What's it the, called again? It's, it's called the Georgia. All right. So the, the politically correct name for it is the Georgia, Florida Shooting Dog Handlers Association. Okay. What it's known as is the Black Bird Dog Handlers Field Trial. Right. So it, there's a lost culture here now. Now we now we getting into my realm. <laughs> there yeah, is a. I'm excited about this. Yeah. I don't know anything about it. So right, that's the problem. A lot of people don't know a lot about it. Um, and you know, hint, hint, wink, wink. I went down there with the guys from Project Upland and had a good time. So anyway, cool. um, so basically, my idol my guru neil carter jr um he's been i mean he's been in this for 40 50 something years training bird dogs pointers yep and so what happened is you've got a long lineage of african-american bird dog trainers that were working on the plantation yep training bird dogs Nobody knew about them. These guys came up in the 80s. You know, Leroy Clayton, Malachi Caleb, uh, Neil Carter Jr., Joe Fryson, all of these guys, Some of many of whom I met, Curtis Brooks Sr. I met these guys uh, in February. Yeah, February, March. And um, these guys basically put together their own field trial. It's not under American field. It's not under anything that anybody really knows about. It's just theirs. It's just theirs. That's badass. It was expected to fail the first year. Well, Bob, it's 2019. And they, I mean, and they are still, dude, when I tell you, I have learned so much about training bird dogs from Neil Carter Jr. And I, I call him on my phone if I got any kind of questions. You know, and, and what we're trying to do is basically preserve the legacy of African-American bird dog hunters, uh, I mean, bird dog trainers, and pass that on. So it's me, it's Neil Carter's son, Shed uh, Carter, is Curtis Brooks Sr. son, Curtis Brooks Jr., you know, all of us are really trying to maintain that legacy. That's so cool, dude. Yeah, I'll send you some pictures and stuff, man. So, and just a, a, I'm going to get off on a baby tangent and we'll get back going. But this, those guys are the reason why I even got into this. That's why. I didn't know them. It was like what happened was I got my lab. And I'm a big fan of Gardening Gun Magazine. I'm sure you've been down here in the South. I'm sure you didn't seen that magazine. Oh, yeah. um, and so Gardening Gun, Erwin Greenstein, the art author, did an article on the Georgia-Florida shooting dog handlers. 
all of these guys worked on a plantation and basically they come together. Well, that article is in Gardening Gun. I'm flipping through the magazine and I, you know, being black down here, it's something that everybody, you know, knows and I guess it's taboo to say it, but it ain't a whole lot of black folks that are really seen, you know, doing this, but we've been here. Well, of course, I look in this magazine and I'm like, whoa, where did these guys come from? That's so awesome. And I'm from Atlanta, man. Like, ain't nobody up here doing that. Sure. And so I took my butt down to Thomasville, Georgia, drove four hours away. Come to find out, I went to Albany State University, which is also in South Georgia. I was an hour away from these guys and didn't even know it. Were you still in school at this time? So you no. Just, like, going on a weekend? No, I wasn't in school. I, I actually got out of college from Albany, left Albany, came back to Atlanta, got into, got my first lab, and then saw the article. So I was back wow. up here by the time. So I made it a point to drive back down there. Sure. And, I would have too. Yeah, man. And I mean, Neil welcomed me with open arms, came in. I did a podcast with him. Um, he, one of my, my, my ultimate favorite podcasts I've ever had. Um, I did a podcast with him and just got a chance to learn the whole legacy. He signed the article for me and invited me back down and then um, invited me this year to come down to the field trials. That's awesome. Were you in the gallery riding on the horse? I was in the gallery. It was me, Will Sensing, and my buddy Hunter Morton. We didn't have horses because they just didn't have any for us, so they gave us Jeeps. All right, that's yeah, cool too. It, hey, it worked, <laughs> and we they gave us jeeps. And Joe Fryson, who was also a five time um, field trialer, he was the one driving us around. And that man is as silly as silly as silly as can get. But when you're sitting in the same jeep as a field trial champion, don't you think my ears was turned on? Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> you're learning. Like I said, it's all about being a sponge. Oh yeah, it's all man. About being a sponge. So. You know, to you. to be able to do that, and then you talk about dogs that were crazy. Neil is a legend down here, first of all. But then Curtis Brooks Sr., he came down and, and, and he brought out his, um, his English setter. Dude, when I tell you that dog vacuumed, that dog vacuumed the field. Nice. I love it. I, I mean, love it. I really do love it. I've been working. Do you know Trey Littlejohn? I've never heard of him. What? Who? Who All is right. he? Put me he's, on. He, yeah, I should. He's awesome. Uh, he's around my age, maybe a year older, so young thirties, right? Uh huh. And, and he was raised by his grandparents, and his grandfather is a renowned bird dog guy, field trialer. Okay. And so Trey's, you know, let's say ten years old and playing birds and helping his grandpa train dogs. And he worked for a plantation in Beaufort and trained their bird dogs. And now he's running his field trials and winning. And wow. He's got a really neat facility right here on John's Island in Charleston where I'm living. And so a couple of days a week, me and the pointers will go over and work with him. I'll help him. He'll help me. Then I'll go and do the retrievers. Um, but he's a he's an intelligent like trainer man you just watch him and like some of the things i learned before i met him 
I ixnade, and now I'm doing it his way. Like I just like it. Okay. Uh, and he's he's kicking ass in the field trials. Um, Dude, I would love got a couple to, of pointers to and got a couple setters and horseback, you know, horses, and he does it all. So wow. definitely something you should, you know, either drive up here and meet and mm-hmm. train with, or um, you know, call and have a podcast with too. Well, I want to do both, man. I've got some uh, some rounds to make in South Carolina. I've got to come up there and meet Mo Lindley too. So. Yeah, yeah. I got to meet Trey Littlejohn, Mo Lindley. I got my work cut out for me. <laughs> yeah, one of my buddies in New York sends his Vichula to Mo. Okay, okay, okay. So that's how I know him. I've never met him, and I've never trained with him, but that's how I know the name. Man, small world, bro. It's a small world. Well, I um, I will definitely have to send you what I, when we get off of this. I still got more questions for you if you don't mind. Um. Yeah, but when we get off, I will send you the um, the photo stream of the field trials down here in Thomasville. It was about a month and some change ago. Um, it, it was dope, man. And, you know, it, it felt more like a family reunion down here than it did a field trial. <laughs> yeah. So who won it? So Curtis Brooks Sr. won it. Oh, nice. Yeah, and, and and again, we're talking about folks that I was looking at in a magazine article. Neil yep. Neil is the legend of the whole thing. I mean, he's got unquestioned respect down here. Curtis actually has a photo in that same article that, you know, he was the one that made me want to get an English pointer. Seeing his pointer stacked, I'll send you that too, his pointer stacked up on top of his truck bed. Dude looked like like he was knighted. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you're running these and, and and traveling and seeing these trials, are you what, what's the breed specific? Talk to me. Are you seeing mostly English pointers? Yeah. Like if you were to give a percentage, pointers, setters, and then other. What are those others and stuff? Okay, so with the black bird dog trials, it's all pointers and setters, mostly pointers. Okay. 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 You'll see, you know, two or three setters here and there. Um, with Nastra, I'm seeing a combination. It's interesting. I'm seeing a a, a lot of pointers. A lot of German short hairs, really. A lot of setters, and then a little bit of other, like your wire hairs. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm seeing, but I see. I would even say I see just as many English pointers as I do English setters, and I see a a little less German short hairs. Gotcha. I've trained a lot more German short hairs and wire hairs than I have setters yeah. and pointer. Yeah. But I can tell you that I don't know. I mean, they're all good in their own yeah. respective ways for sure. But I feel like the like you said, you got maybe a what a three month, three and a half month old puppy, and he's mm-hmm. staunch and just knows what he knows. Right. Right. Some of these, some of the other dogs are just. Not as, I don't know. It's hard to say because I've seen some that were lights out at a very young age too. So yeah, I don't know, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. No, you're not. I know what you're talking about. Um, and, and my buddies, because my buddies got short hairs too, so they're gonna kick my butt when I say this. I just think 
it's it, it uh, uh, an English pointer. It's a machine. It is a driving machine. Yep. A setter is a driving machine. I think I feel like I've never trained a German short hair. I've only seen it, and I can only go off of so many things. Um, right. They call English pointers and English setters uh, one trick ponies, but they're damn good at doing that one trick. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're damn good at doing that one trick well with your short hairs I feel like there are a lot more components that go to it because we're talking about a versatile dog right you see what I'm saying right. you're getting yep, you're, you're trying to get a dog to do it. I've also seen and correct me if I'm wrong it seems like the tracking ability in a German short hair is a bit more strong is a bit more pronounced than the wind scenting ability. The nose in the air. I could be wrong, but I notice a you lot of nose on the ground. Nose more. on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think it depends on the dog a little bit and, and you know, I think some of that's how it's trained too. Yeah. You know, okay. I, I don't know. I I think certain kind of pressure a dog can put his nose down more than holding his head up. Mm-hmm. Um you know I, the big thing, when we talk about specifics, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about a little bit of, and you and I are both doing it, so it's neither here nor there. It's all right. good, and I hope people take everything with a grain of salt right. that we're talking in generalizations. Like, I've seen setters that are nose on the ground and, and work low and slink to into a bird, and so I, I think, you know, there's a... It's all what you want out of your dog. Mm-hmm. And I think if you do, no matter what, if you like a German short-haired pointer, right. just always love that breed and you want a, a quail dog and that's the breed you're going to get, just do your research and find the best one you can. Right. And you're going to be fine. Right. If you want a duck dog and you want a duck hunt, don't get a German short-haired. Right. It's just, it's okay at it. It's not lights out. Right. I've trained a bunch of them and some of them are very good. But very good compared to great is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Right. And well, see, I, I think that is what, yes, I agree with you, Bob. Keep going. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. So, I, And, you know, I say the same thing in our world. Like, the differences between a Chessie and a Golden and, you know, a standard Poodle and a Curly Coat and a Flat Coat, they're not labs. Mm-hmm. You know, most labs, generally speaking, just get it. And they work hard, and they are team players, and it, they're easier for the first-time trainer to train. Mm-hmm. The other breeds are a little bit more nuanced, and you got to finesse them a little bit, mm-hmm. and they're just not as easy. Right. So, you know, I just say it's kind of like, hey, it's not a lab. Whenever I'm training something that's not a lab, hey, it's not a lab. It's not a lab. And I, and I, I like that how you put that. Um, there is no... This ain't a conversation about what's better or worse. Right. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you know, um, I I had to do my research and, and, you know, I'm not even ashamed to say at a point I even thought about getting a German short hair. Sure. You see what I'm saying? I thought about yeah, it. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're beautiful dogs. And there was a time that I thought about getting a Chesapeake Bay Retriever. I mean, my one of my good buddies, Eric, has a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, and the dog hunts awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think for me, it boils down to me being a bit of a traditionalist. In a lot of ways, I think there's some things, like for me, one plus one kind of equal two for two there. 
I wanted a, I wanted a dog that was re- relatively easy to train and kind of knew what to do. So I, I went and got a lab for my first dog. Yep. You know, and, and, and he does everything that I need him to do. My next dog, I wanted a tried and true quail dog. Okay. Like yep. your Ozark Ripley style quail dog. That's a pointer to me. Yep. You see what I'm saying? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially if you want to, and especially if you want to run a field trial. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Look at the percentages. What's winning field trials? Mm-hmm. Pointers and setters. Mm-hmm. So if you want to win and you want to play, get what's winning. You got to get what's winning. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we've been on here for a minute. I got a couple questions to ask you, and I just kind of want to, you know, kind of catch some of your, uh, your thoughts. What do you think? Let's talk about the HRC hunt test format. Let's go back to Retriever World. Um, you know, what do you think, and AKC, because I know you're focusing a lot there too. What do you think we can do to maybe either create more challenges or improve the format or something you really, really like that's already in place? Hmm. Man. No, I, I think I think generally speaking, mm-hmm. the judges are good. Okay. I think I think a lot of people, and I, it's a pet peeve of mine, is sitting there watching other dogs work and people in the gallery complaining about judges. I think that's baloney. Okay. So these these guys are and girls are giving up their weekend to come and judge so that we can run our dogs like. Do I think some are nutty? Do I think some set up tests that are unfair or not necessarily even unfair, but like, you know, mm-hmm. all right, dude, bring your dog out. If your dog can do this, you know, I, that's cool. And I think a lot of people get that in their mind. Like these judges aren't, they can't even do it and they're expecting us to. Right. And I look at that like I can see the complainer's point, but hey, train your dog, mm-hmm. you know, work hard, try hard. Mm-hmm. You and the dog are going to be a team and try and accomplish it. The judges set up to, according to a standard, run it. They're going to judge it how they judge it, put a smile on your face and let it rip. Right. And so I think people would, I think if I had to say one thing is, I think judges need to actually run dogs so that they understand how to set up marks um, and, and, you know, they might know the rule book in and out, but mm-hmm. if they don't necessarily, or haven't in a long time, work the dog through issues and work the dog through marks and blinds and how to set that stuff up, then they might set up kind of a weird test. Right. And so I think that it would be beneficial to have a judge actually have to campaign a dog instead of maybe sending it to a pro and having somebody else do it. Right. Or haven't done it in 10 years. Right. Their dog's 10 and they haven't done it in forever. Well, right. all right, stay relevant. If right. you're going to be, if you're going to wield that power over everybody, you know, you should have some credibility that you can do it and train a dog too. Right. Well, one thing, uh, NAVDA does that really well. They may, if I'm not mistaken, they make their judges run dogs every so many years. Well, that's the kicker. Mm-hmm. It's so many years. It's like every seven years or something. Something like that. Yeah. So, and I think that's the same with the AKC, uh, is something like every seven years. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's bad. I definitely think it's necessary, but I think 
you know, if you're a judge, but I don't know. I, I look at it also like it's hard enough to get judges to come and spend a weekend, you know, away from their families and away from being able to run their own dog or whatever the case may be. Like it's tough to find judges. So if you get super strict on it, you might not be able to right. find judges. Right. So I don't know, man. I really truly believe that the hunt tests and field trials are a fun game. They're a great way to spend the off season and build the unspoken bond with your dog. Mm-hmm. 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 I uh, I like that. I um I put my dog my lab in one hunt test after I just realized that kind of wasn't wasn't something I wanted to keep doing. Not because I had any kind of problem with it. I just Ruger's a hunting dog to me, and that's all I kind of want him to do. There are certain things about um, hunt tests that are kind of nuanced to me, but I understand the importance of them in the mindset of a standard, i.e. like cheating, for example, right? You De-cheating your yeah. dog. Eh, it, you know, I've seen it to where a dog has just completely gone to get a mark and just hightailed it the total other way. Right. You know, um, and so going out to get a mark, and we're talking about throwing a mark in, let's say, a pond, and there's a, a strip of land right next to it, and a dog's natural inclination to want to run up on the land and just run back, because it's theoretically easier. Sure. Um, things like that are very, very, very impressive to me. Very impressive. Um, if my dog doesn't cheat, that's great. Um but for me, I think about it in an all-day hunt or we're out there. If he's tired or something like that, there's some things that I kind of fold on a little bit. And maybe that's my, I mean, that's definitely my fault. You know, I've had it to where my dog will go out, swim, retrieve something in the water. And make instead of making a straight line out and a straight line back, it kind of makes a bit of a triangle. So the angle is a bit off. Right. You see what I'm saying? 100%. It's not going to pass a hunt so test, he's going to beach early, he's going to get out early, and then run the bank, and then it's quicker. Right. It, it, uh, that's not going to pass a hunt test. Like, it's just not. Uh, it depends on what level you're at. It'll pass started, which he did. Right, yeah. It'll pass started, it'll pass junior, and it's actually, in senior, it's okay on the return. Okay. So they can't cheat the bank. It's got to be within moderation, really, in senior. Right. So if they run the entire bank and pick up a blind or a mark, and it was supposed to be a water mark and the dog never got wet, you're not going to pass. Okay. But if it tried to get in the water and it tried to do pretty well and then gets out early and goes and gets the bird or you know goes and gets the bird and then runs the bank back, you're going to be okay. Okay. Um, so there are some nuances, and it, it's. I just look at it like I agree with you, and I look at it if I'm playing devil's advocate to myself, Andy, my English setter. I might run around tests or trials, like a cover dog or something like that. Right. But in the grand scheme of things, I just want her to be steady to wing shot and fall. Mm -hmm. I want to see how far I can take her mm -hmm. in training. But at the end of the day, I just wanted to hunt. Right. I, I I love hunting over her. Right. And that's cool. So if she never runs a trial in her life, I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. But I think it'd be fun. Right. Now my labs, 
I really enjoy the hunt test. I enjoy the accomplishment. I enjoy seeing how far I can take them and getting that little pat on the back with the ribbon and the accolades and, and my clients enjoy it. And so I'm going to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they also need to go and hunt. So I got to do it all. And, and that's, and see, so our, it's so funny. We, we have a lot of similarities. Our preferences are flipped. So my pointer I'm in, I'm all about the field trial game, right? Like I, he's definitely going to hunt. We're going to hunt majority of the season and we're going to hunt wild birds. Yep. Um, but when it comes to field trialing, I want him to be able to retrieve because of Nastra, but I don't want to, I don't want that dog to break on my shot at all until I tell you to go and go and retrieve because I want the style points. You know, so, you know, you bring up a very good point. It's about what you want out of the dog. Um, You know, and I and I and I have to, you know, and I'll kind of wrap things up soon. But, you know, I get weird, man, when I see a lot of guys overhandling. You know, I'm mm, a lot of whistling this, a lot of whistling that. I'm kind of like with my dog. I can only speak about mine. I'm kind of like, yo, I need you to go out, retreat, and come back. If I need to guide you somewhere, you know, he'll stop on a whistle, cast this way, cast that way. But I'm really interested in developing that dog's sense of independence. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, I personally don't think that that is going to fit the format of your hunt test for a retriever. Yeah, I... I think you're pretty right. I think you're mostly right. Yeah. I had my first dog, Buck, that we talked about earlier. He has a senior hunter title and a couple finished passes in HRC. And he hunted hard. Mm-hmm. Picked up a lot of ducks. Pheasant hunted a lot. And pheasant hunting for a flushing dog, you know this, you know, they that's complete independence all you got to do is stay within range but you're on your own dog Mm -hmm. so when we would go to run a blind in a hunt test he would go on autopilot a little bit he would you know instead of having his nose high and charging hard he'd be going in that straight line but his nose would be closer to the ground and he'd be trying to wind Mm -hmm. where the blind is and so i think you know if you can create a little bit of that happy medium Mm-hmm. And that balance in life with your hunting dog and your hunt test dog, you could be very successful. If you so. only want a hunt test, cool. If you only want to hunt, cool. But if you only hunt test, then what are you going to do during the wintertime? Right. Nothing? No. <laughs> if you're only going to hunt, what are you doing with your dog in the summertime? Nothing? Go hunt test. Go train. Have a goal. You know, get your dog to the next level just because you can, because there's time, you know, yeah. why, why go out and throw marks from your hip and, and do, do the basics that your dog already knows, try and challenge them, challenge yourself, see what you can do with that dog. And in turn, it builds the relationship right. and you're enjoying time out in the field, but challenge the dog, teach yourself, teach them how to be better. And then if you want to run a test, cool, but always challenge yourself. Right, right. I think so. Um, and, you know, with that being said, um, last couple of things, you know, talk about challenging yourself. 
I have this thing called Covey Confessions, right? I just I, every so often I ask it. I don't ask it enough. But are there any any kind of short stories or anything that sticks out in your mind that maybe was an aha moment or just like crap? Why did I do that moment? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> uh like aha moment as in positive yeah positive positive negative whatever you got sure man i don't know you know the kicker is i do this every day so it all uh, blends together um i think maybe the aha moment is knowing that this is what i'm going to do with my life and that i enjoy dogs and want to breed and train and raise great family members great hunting dogs healthy happy i think that's my aha moment is Mm -hmm. leaving the real world and the nine to five you know jobs that were unfulfilling and chase the dream that's my aha moment okay and having the kind of guts to to do it um sometimes i can't even believe that i did right like Mm -hmm. i didn't come from parents that had their own businesses and like nobody taught me how to do this i figured it out you know on my own really um, so that's kind of my aha moment. And then every day I try and do the best I can. I think my, if I had to critique myself on a negative, um, I can be, I can be like, we were talking earlier about having really high expectations of dogs and mm-hmm. expecting a lot out of them as a positive. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is true. And I think that's why we make dogs great. And I think that's why they learn and it's awesome. But I think it can come at a cost if you push the dog too fast too soon Mm -hmm. or jump a step. And I feel like that would probably be my downfall is maybe losing my patience or being frustrated. Like, why aren't you getting this? Like, we've been doing this forever. It's like, hey, it's a freaking dog. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's going to, it's sniffing a butt two seconds later, like a dog sniffing a butt, mm-hmm. you know, give it a break. It didn't pick up this bird. Like teach it, show it. Like mm-hmm. you can't get too upset because it's still just a dog. Right. And some are better than others. Some learn differently, some quicker, some don't learn at all. And it, I have to sit back sometimes and like take that deep breath and be like, it's just a dog work them through it, teach them. I'm not making the dog do this. I'm teaching the dog to do this. And if I can remember to teach, not make, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, more often I'll be happier. And, uh, and I think that's what makes happy dogs too. You know, we want dogs to be happy. This is supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be a job. It's supposed to be like playing sports. Right. That's the other thing I try to remind myself. If you show up and go to your job every day, you hate your job. Nobody likes going to their job. They want to go to their passion. They want to go and do what makes them happy. Um, and I remember going and playing rugby in school. Like I worked out. I ate right. I did everything right because I loved it. I was passionate about it, and I was good at it. Mm-hmm. If it uh, I don't know if I would have loved it as much. Right. So I want to make this like a sport to these dogs. I want them to go to work out. I want them to eat healthy. I want them to train. I want them to show up and play. I don't want them to go and get mundane and sit behind the computer and, you know, 
punch tickets all day. So if you remember that it's a team and it's a sport and not a job, that helps too. Right. So I got to keep all those things in mind because I can fall to those habits, man. Not perfect. Right. Right. I think that was phenomenal, man. <laughs> oh, I rambled, so I'm glad you liked it. Well, that that was the I have a dream speech for dog folks. <laughs> I am here for it, man. <laughs> I love it. All right, man. Well, as we wrap this up, you know, you are the social media icon that you are. You're the podcast guru that you are. What what can we leave for the social media crowd and tell folks how to find you? What messages you got? Well, I think you just pumped it up way too much. <laughs> I am, I, I'm just me, guys. I enjoy training dogs. I enjoy sharing my story with people. I enjoy helping with training questions uh, and showing you what it's like to kind of be a trainer and hang out with dogs all day and the places it takes us. Um, so if you're into Instagram, check out at Lone Duck, L-O-N-E-D-U-C-K. Um, if you're into the podcast game, which I'm sure you are because you're listening to this, mm-hmm. um, our podcast is called Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles. And basically we talk to other professional dog trainers um, we have retriever trainers, we have pointer people, we've got the yesterday's podcast we did with a wildlife biologist in New York State, and we talked about all different things in New York State with conservation and deer hunting, and it was kind of different. So if you love dogs, if you love to learn more about dog training, that podcast is, is highly focused on that. Um, Facebook is Lone Duck Outfitters. Our website, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. That's where you can get your clothing, your gear, your leather products. We sell e-collars, wingers, kind of anything you need to train a dog. We've got that. Blog articles, YouTube videos. I mean, it's it's pretty in-depth. We've got a lot of resources to help people. And we're looking in through 2019 to keep growing that and be that resource to help someone train their own dog, do it on, do it with Lone Duck, alone, whatever they want to do, um, be a role model, if you will, and a mentor to everybody through mm-hmm. social Okay, okay, okay. Well, guys, you know, if y'all haven't had enough of Bob Owens, you know where to find him. Um, Lone Duck is... It's, it's, it's its own brand. <laughs> it's its own name. So, you know, with that, Bob, I want to thank you so much. You hang tight for a second as we wrap it up. But, you know, guys, that's another awesome episode of the Gundog Notebook podcast. I hope that y'all learned a lot. I know that y'all learned a lot. And uh, we had a good opportunity to talk some 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 retrievers and some pointers. So until next week, we will see y'all later. All right, guys, I hope y'all enjoyed that particularly special episode. It was a really, really, really dope conversation with Bob. Um, I just don't think you're going to too much find that kind of just passion and skill and expertise anywhere else other than in the upland bird world, in the waterfowl world. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's folks like Bob that just really, really, really make me more excited to uh, 
you know, just be a part of this whole podcast industry and be a part of this whole, you know, bird dog thing, man. Like, I can sit there and talk to guys like Bob for hours, clearly. I talk a lot anyway. But, you know, I got these two dogs here, and, and I just want to continue to thank any of the guests that have been on, any of the listeners, you know, that, you know, interject and, and you know, give me a thumbs up. So with that being said, speaking of which, if you guys don't mind going and uh, rating and reviewing the podcast, give me some more ratings, reviews, let me know what you think. Um, you know, I even, you know, want to know your honest, honest, honest thoughts. So if you want to DM me, reach out, let me know what's going on. Hey, any, any new, uh, subject matters and, and hosts and, uh, you know, whatever the gamut is in bird dog stuff that you guys want to hear. I don't care whether they have a podcast, whether they got one dog, two dogs, three dogs, as long as they are good dog folks. Okay. Um, iTunes, uh, Google guys, y'all can definitely, uh, you know, find more of, uh, you know, this information and more podcast stuff out there now. Um, be sure, because I changed up the uh, platform, be sure to kind of double check, resubscribe, subscribe, whatever you need to do to get all the up-to-date episodes of the Gun Dog Notebook podcast. Um, I'm trying to make it more convenient for y'all. I really, really, really am. So, anywho, um, I want to thank my sponsors and affiliates, um, Dakota 283, Lion Country Supply, Project Upland, Orvis, um, you know, and a few few new up-and-comers pretty soon, too. Um, I just want to thank my support system as well. So with that being said, I know I've taken up two hours of your time. Thank you all again for being such awesome listeners to the Gundog Notebook Podcast.